Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 20, 23 through 24, and 33 through 36. But be very careful. You did not see the Lord's form on the day he spoke to you from the heart of the fire at Mount Sinai. So do not corrupt yourselves by making an idol in any form, whether of a man or a woman, an animal on the ground, a bird in the sky, a small animal that scurries along the ground, or a fish in the deepest sea. And when you look up into the sky and see the sun, moon, and stars, all the forces of heaven, don't be seduced into worshiping them. The Lord your God gave them to all the peoples of the earth. Remember that the Lord rescued you from the iron smelting furnace of Egypt in order to make you his very own people and his special possession, which is what you are today. So be very careful not to break the covenant the Lord your God has made with you. Do not make idols of any shape or form, for the Lord your God has forbidden this. The Lord your God is a devouring fire. He is a jealous God. Has any nation ever heard the voice of God speaking from fire as you did and survived? Has any other God dared to take a nation for himself out of another nation by means of trials, miraculous signs, wonders, war, a strong hand, a powerful arm, and terrifying acts? Yet that is what the Lord your God did for you in Egypt, right before your eyes. He showed you these things so that you would know that the Lord is God and there is no other. He let you hear his voice from heaven so he could instruct you. He let you see his great fire here on earth so he could speak to you from it. Good morning. If you're newer to Crosspoint, you may be wondering a little bit what's going on, but we're going to switch up our order a little bit today simply because we have some, um, the, we're going to experience the Lord's Supper later on in the service. So we're going to start off sharing from God's Word with you. Now, most of you know that we're in the book of 2 Corinthians, and we're going to continue there, but the text from Deuteronomy 4 hopefully will make some sense to you in a moment. Now, let me just get us up to speed. Sad to say that there were issues in the Corinth church. Paul had planted it and then equipped it for 18 months and then moved on. But Paul, his ministry and his teaching, well, were under attack at this church. The focus was on Paul's credentials, his motives, his promises, and even his looks. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul going underneath that kind of a microscope. So Paul was defending his God-given authority. He wasn't concerned as much about his reputation as, a, as he was his message that was being defiled or diluted. So chapter 11 continues where 10 left off. Chapter 11 is filled with sarcasm. Well, that doesn't really draw me. But the truth is, this is God's word. And the flock needed protection, and the shepherd showed his fangs. So what we're going to do, let's pray before we jump into 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Father, oh God, oh holy God, you are a God of compassion and mercy. 
you are slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Your ways, Lord, are perfect and your actions are just. You are our rock, our shield, and we take refuge in you. Fear and uncertainty, fear and uncertainty cloud our vision, Father. So we pray as David prayed in Psalm 143. I'm losing all hope. I am paralyzed with fear. I remember, David writes, the days of old. I ponder all of your great works and think about what you have done, God. I lift my hands in prayer and I thirst for you as a parched land thirsts for rain. Let me hear of your unfailing love each morning, for I am trusting you. Show me where to walk, for I give myself to you. We continue to pray for our land, Lord, its leaders, the justice system, and first responders. We pray for educators. We pray, dear God, for our parents. We pray for the students. We ask you, dear God, that you would give them strength and perspective and wisdom. Some of the things we're doing seems really old. But we ask you, Father, for your perspective and for growth in spite of the circumstances or situations we're in. We pray, dear God, that you would make your church, this church, strong. We pray, Father, that we would hear your voice in light of all the different scenarios and that we would take advantage of divine opportunities you give. We pray for your church, and in particular, three churches in our area, for LifeSpring and for New Hope and for Fierce. We pray, dear God, that you would work in these congregations and that they would be salt and light as we are. We pray, dear God, for your kingdom. And we pray that it would come on earth as it is in heaven. We love you, Lord. And we thank you for everything. We are grateful, especially for the gathering right here in your house. And for all those part of your family spread out all over the land. We love you, Lord. In your name, amen. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'm going to start reading at verse 1 and go into verse 2. This is what Paul writes. I hope you will put up with a little more of foolishness. Please bear with me. For I, Paul says, am jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. Paul is jealous for the flock at the Corinth church like God is jealous for us. Now, to understand God's jealousy, we need to be able to understand what a covenant is. Folks of faith have a covenantal relationship with God. A covenant is more 
um, than a contract and deeper than friendship. Three words in the text that was read for us in Deuteronomy 4 help us understand what a covenant is. The word jealous, the word idolatry, and the word fire. This morning we're going to dive into jealous, we're going to touch idolatry. Now Moses is called, or Moses calls God jealous in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. Let me read it again, and it's on the screen behind us. But the Lord your God is a devouring fire. He is a jealous God. Now for the majority of us, we read that God is jealous. We take, take a step back. It seems like an odd descriptor. There are two ways that we use the word jealous. Normally, jealous means envy. We use it in the sense of being envious of someone who has something we do not have. A car, a house, looks, a spouse. We get mad and want it for ourselves. We often tell the children in our household, don't don't be jealous. Don't be jealous. It seems so negative. But we also use jealous to mean passionate or committed. It actually is a positive term. Let me illustrate. A parent is often jealous for their adult children. It doesn't mean they're not jealous for their kids at home, but this illustration fits a little better if the kids are moved out. Maybe they have their own lives. Maybe they're starting their new lives. But, but parents get angry or riled up or passionate when they see their adult kids going down a wrong path, making a poor choice. It's a complex anger because of your love for them. You get riled up and angry at the evil that might be destroying them. Let's look at the covenant of marriage. Something happens when you find your spouse is getting friendly with somebody else. A mature response would be a godly jealousy. Angry because you love him or her. You see, breaking a covenant deeply hurts you, but is really hurting them. Now, there are no perfect parents or marriages, but, but, what if there was someone, someone who was perfect, And someone who was all wise. Someone who knows you and knows the future and knows exactly what's best for you. Someone who loves perfectly. Well, you know where I'm going. There is. There is someone called God. You see, everyone who comes to faith enters a covenantal relationship with him. When God sees his family or his child choosing to sin, he gets jealous. 
When God sees his bride choosing to love someone other than him, he begins to get jealous. So you see, God is jealous in a perfect way, which makes it a perfect descriptor of our Heavenly Father. God is not jealous or envious because someone has something he wants or needs. God is jealous when his kids dishonor him and settle for the good, not necessarily even evil. Specifically, God is saying, we have an exclusive relationship. I alone am God. I am what's best for you and for me. You are not to bow down or flirt with any other gods. You are to remain faithful to me because loving me is ultimate. You are not to commit adultery by worshiping other gods. So when God talks about jealousy in the scriptures, for the most part, he follows up and also talks about idolatry. I'm not sure if you noticed, but in Deuteronomy 4, Moses lists all good things. They're all good. But then he says, don't worship them. Idolatry happens when we make good things ultimate things. Or we make them take the place that God ought to have. We always miss out by being in covenant with good things. Let me say that again. We always miss out when we're in covenant with good things. So God is jealous and gets angry when the covenant is broken. His glory is diminished. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, is not honored or respected. The covenant breakers are choosing death, not life. In some ways, his heart is broken. He created each one of us for a rich relationship, abundant living, ultimate living. And God knows that you and I will experience the best of life when we're pure and we're faithful and we're obedient and we're listening. Basically, when we're in relationship with him. God is what is best, and he alone knows what is best. So it's not like any other human relationship. It's a relationship with the Almighty. Now, Paul starts off saying he is jealous for the church... The way God is jealous about us. Now, Paul is not God. He's a church planner. He's an apostle. He's a pastor. But he is jealous for the church, just like God is jealous for us. 
Jealousy, again, in our definitions, is wanting what the best is for the church in Corinth. And they were choosing wrong paths. They were going down a pathway that was unhealthy. They were believing things that were lies. They weren't experiencing abundant life. And so Paul pours his heart out and says, I'm jealous for you. I want the best for you. And it's not happening. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 2 to 4 and then jump down to verses 13 to 15. I promised you, Paul writes, as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. But I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted, just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the Spirit. You happily put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach, or a different kind of spirit than the one you received, or a different kind of gospel than the one you believed. These people are false apostles. They are deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. But I'm not surprised. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no wonder that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In the end, though, they will get the punishment their wicked deeds deserve. Paul, the under-shepherd, is jealous for the church. Many are not experiencing life, which is most upsetting to Paul because when he left, they were. Paul fears that the flock has been deceived, like Eve, listening to the enemy. And if you were with us last week, we, we went a little bit into the first part of Genesis and saw that the enemy's method basically is to cast doubt about God and to lie about God. Well, breaking the covenant with God is always bad. They did have a pure and undivided relationship with Christ. But smooth operators have deceived them. And these folks have embraced a different message about Jesus, about the Spirit, and about the gospel. Now, I'm pretty sure they were clear on Jesus, the Spirit, and the gospel if you had the Apostle Paul as your pastor for for 18 months. These are not trivial doctrines. And yet somehow they were being deceived. How could you not get Jesus or the Spirit or the gospel? After Paul was teaching over and over and over. Well, what happens is he was gone. What happens, there were imposters coming in. What happens, they begin to dilute the wonderful message of Jesus. The Spirit and the Gospel. Basically, what 
Paul says is, you have fallen for the super apostles' charm in presentation. Their message in presentation literally, in verse 20 of chapter 11, says it has enslaved you. And you're missing out. You are not living the life that God intended for you to live. And I am, Paul says, madly jealous. Now Paul, as you know, again, is talking about his authority. He's trying to remind the people again that that he, well, he paid the price. He put in his time. He wanted them to understand how much he really loved them. He wasn't a flash in the pan. So he says this, let me remind you what a jealous shepherd looks like. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 5. But I don't consider myself, Paul says, inferior in any way to these super apostles who teach such things. I may be unskilled as a speaker, but I'm not lacking in knowledge. We have made this clear to you in every way. Was I wrong when I humbled myself and honored you by preaching God's good news to you without expecting anything in return? I robbed other churches by accepting their contributions so I could serve you at no cost. First thing Paul reminds us in this text is that he knew and shared God's truth. Apparently they didn't. He wasn't necessarily flashy. Josephus, an early church historian, basically looks at Paul and said he had an impediment, which we'll talk a little bit more next week, but his impediment probably was stuttering. And so can you imagine, again, teaching over and over? He wasn't smooth, but he knew the truth. And that's what he fed them. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting at verse 1, Paul wrote this to the same church. He says, when I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters... I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you about God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling. And my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would not trust in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Paul's emo, wherever he went, was to make sure that he would teach God's word accurately. Over in Acts chapter 19, there's in verse 8, we just see one little line, all right? And, and Paul well, a description about Paul. Then Paul went into the synagogue and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. At this time, he was at the church of Ephesus. He was planting this. But there was a few different issues, a few different problems. He says, hey, we'll just go to a different spot, but what I want to do is be able to teach you. I want to be able 
for you to understand truth. It's interesting, near the end of Paul's life, he was writing to a mentor. And he wrote to his friend and pastor friend, Timothy. And in Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 4, basically Paul says this, I don't have a lot of time left. This is actually at the end of my last letter that I'm going to write. What I want you to understand, Timothy, is I want you to preach the Word. The Word is critical. Look what he says, 2 Timothy chapter 4. I solemnly urge you in the presence of God in Jesus Christ, who will someday judge the living and the dead, when he comes to set up his kingdom. And here's his advice. Preach the word, Timothy. Whenever you have that opportunity, preach the word, Timothy. Be prepared. Whether the time is favorable or not, patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. Correcting is helping people go in the right direction. Rebuking is if there is apparent sin in their life. Encouragement is pumping their tires. He says, why are you going to preach the word this way, Timothy? For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. It sounds a little bit like what's happening in the Corinth church. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news, Timothy, and fully carry out the ministry that God has given you. The Apostle Paul knew the power of the Word and knew even in the most mature churches, that there is a danger that the word might get diluted. After his missionary journeys, Paul was actually going back to his home base. And he stopped right outside of Ephesus, a church that he spent three years, as you're going to see. And he met with the leadership there. And this is Paul's words to the leaders at the church of Ephesus. Acts 20, starting in verse 28. So guard yourself, elders, and God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock, his church, purchased with his own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as leaders. Elders, I want you to feed. God's word is critical. You must understand it is life transforming. It gives you guidance. It convicts you. It encourages you for the journey. And then he says this about the church at Ephesus. This again, this happened in Corinth, and it probably happened in more of the churches. But this is what he says I know that false teachers in the church of Ephesus like vicious wolves, will come after you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth 
in order to draw following. Watch out. Watch out. Remember the three years I was with you, my constant watch and care over you, night and day, Paul says, and my many tears for you. And now I, he's leaving, he's leaving, entrust you to God and to the message, to his word of his grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those he has set apart for himself. Wow. See, a jealous shepherd knows how important God's word is and will faithfully feed the flock over and over and over again with God's precious word. A jealous shepherd will also well, won't be in the ministry for money. He'll humbly trust God to provide. Now, I'd like you to look at verses 23 to 27 because this text really should blow you away. Paul is saying he is a jealous shepherd and, and he really had earned the right to be heard. He wasn't a flash in the pan. He really loved Jesus and it cost him. Let's look. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 23. Are they, these false prophets, servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more than any of these guys. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without numbers. He couldn't even count how many times he got whipped. Whoa. And faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Technically, 40 was supposed to kill you. So they stopped. Three times I was shipped. Uh, sorry, three times I was beaten with rods. Normally that has the idea of, of the Romans. The Romans would use that type of torture. So the church beat them up. The government beat them up. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift on the sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, on the seas. I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Paul was a real thing. Yeah, maybe he didn't have the right appearance and maybe his presentation wasn't so articulate or smooth or fancy. But he knew God. He knew how important God's word was. He was faithful as a shepherd to this flock and, and they weren't listening. 
remember Paul and his three missionary journeys, and, and I've tried to be accurate here, but it seems like he probably traveled 6,900 miles by foot or by boat. It was difficult to get around. He had longevity and fruit. Wherever he went, people again, there was life transformation. What Paul was saying here is that the path isn't easy. It costs to follow Jesus, but it is worth it. Can you imagine even going through one of those episodes? One beating of 39 lashes because you're a Christian. We would have probably looked up and said, God, really? I'm supposed to be on your team. What are you doing? Why am I going through this? I'm sure probably Paul won't get his answer until he saw Jesus. But I wonder, as I look at the way Paul's going, if these false apostles had a prosperity gospel bent. Because if you listen to some preachers and you listen to some pastors, well, life is always good. Finances will always be there. You don't have to suffer if you walk with Jesus. (laughs) Paul kind of blew that whole thing up. And then we find this jealous man a good descriptor again. What he ends up saying is this. You have no idea of the burden that I carry for you. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28 and 29. Then Paul says this. Besides all this, besides all the things he just got through writing about, besides all the suffering, besides all of that, I have the daily burden of my concern for all churches. And in that church, he asked two rhetorical questions. Who is weak without my feeling that weakness? Who is led astray and I don't burn with anger when they leave? Paul devoted his life to the saints. He agonized over them. He prayed for them. He exhorted them. He was greatly burdened by their moral and spiritual and physical needs. He was concerned about their doctrine and the teaching. And there was a constant pressure that burden exerted on him that assaulted his peace, his joy, and his satisfaction. Paul was deeply troubled when the church was not listening to God. When the church was not bearing fruit. When the church was not multiplying, something that normally and naturally happens. 
And although he was away, he shared with them. And as I, I've talked before, if you've been with us in our series, this is one letter that Paul bleeds. He pours his heart out. He's sharing with them how much he wants them to love God with all of their hearts. And when they deviate in any way, he knows it's not what's best for them. And it breaks his heart. You see, I think all good shepherds bear the mark of leading a flock. Their sleepless nights, their tears. There's times you don't have any answers. There's times when you see people making foolish, terrible, horrific choices, and you're begging them to go back to Jesus. There's times when, when people aren't dependent on God. They're living their lives apart. They're worshiping the good, not God. They're spending their time and investing in areas. And a shepherd will come alongside. And maybe with a quivery voice. Don't do that. Do you understand what God wants? Do you know how much God loves you. Do you know that? There are people here, elders and leaders and youth leaders that are walking alongside sheep encouraging and strengthening. Don't listen to the voices of our culture. Don't listen to folks who don't understand about Jesus. Paul was jealous for them. And his empathy made him angry. Selfish, prideful, false teachers don't really care about the flock or their struggles. Paul burned with righteous indignation when God's people settled. Just like a parent who watches their grown children leave, walk down a wrong path, and make horrific choices. God is jealous. He is extremely passionate for His honor. And for you, we're going to continue to worship and praise our King in song right now. And in just a few moments, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper in communion. Perhaps some of you right here in the house uh, walked by the elements they're right out in the lobby, and, and when we begin, if you want to participate in communion, you'll need to go get our cup and the bread, which is in the lobby. 
for those who are at home at this moment, if you can get some juice and some crackers so that you might be able to participate as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. During that time, it will be an opportunity for you to express your love for the Lord, a time to reflect on His grace in your life, and a time perhaps to evaluate and repent if there's sin in your life. So let's pray before our worship team comes up. Father, we thank you. We are grateful for all that you've done in our lives. We ask you, dear Lord, at this moment that we would understand your unbelievable love for each one of us. Love that sent you to a cross. Love that spilled your blood. Love that um, enabled each one of us to be reconciled to God the Father. Lord, you are a jealous God. You know what's best for us. You desire deeply for each one of us to be able to experience the ultimate relationship. They're honestly the only one that really matters. But God, we've been deceived, sometimes by preachers, sometimes by culture. But we know, God, that you love us. And we know that what is best for us is you. Would you receive our worship today? We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.